Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg. And I'm Eve Yohalem. Today we're playing a game that we invented way back in episode 61. It's called, You Want Me to Read What? And the rules are simple. We assign each other off the beaten path books to read, and then we get together and talk about them. So this time we're playing the game with Mark Aceto. Mark writes and directs musicals, including the upcoming film Mad Woman, starring and featuring the music of Storm Large. He also writes about musicals, including his thinly veiled autobiographical novel, How I Paid for College. And full disclosure, Mark is also one of my best friends from high school and a treasured former guest on the podcast. You may remember him from episode 23. I selected a novel called Seventeen by the Japanese author Hideo Yokoyama for Mark to read. Mark chose for Eve the Colette novella Gigi. You may remember Gigi from the movie musical it inspired with Leslie Caron, Louis Jordan, and Maurice Chevalier back in 1958. And Eve picked E.B. White's classic ode to New York City called Here is New York for Me. So let's get started. Here I am explaining to Mark why I chose 17 for him. I read and really, really liked the first book of Hideo Yokoyama's that was translated into English, which is a detective novel called Six Four. And I would have loved to have asked you to read that one, 6-4, but it's almost 600 pages long, and I couldn't do that to you, and I know Eve would not have let me do that to you. So, (laughs) (laughs) also, plenty of people hate that book, 6-4. It gets a 3.46 average rating on Goodreads, which is kind of low. I want to read a couple of the bad Goodreads reviews because they're funny. Becky gives it two stars and says, and I quote, Anyone who promotes this as a thriller needs to avoid taking up knitting as that would blow their mind. (laughs) (laughs) Leo gives it one star and says, this is an excellent instruction manual for Japanese policemen. And and I get it. I get it. That book, 6-4, it revolves around a crime, but it's much more about the office politics of the police force in Japan and the thoughts of a middle-aged detective as he deals with those. So I thought it was a fascinating look at Japanese society, and I loved the internality of it, but it is not a thriller in the way that some people think of it. So I couldn't recommend that one, but there are more Yokoyama books now translated into English, and some of them are shorter, like Seventeen, which is only 365 pages, and it fared a little better, at least on Goodreads. So I thought, oh, you and I can read it together. We can talk about it. And I got very excited about it. Julie, about the about the first one, though, I'm, I'm going to read it and then we, we can talk about it. Because the internality of 17, I think, was the most appealing thing about it to me. Yeah. And I don't want to spoil anything because I want to have a full conversation about 17. But let's talk a little bit before we talk more about the author. 
So Hideo Yokoyama worked for 12 years as an investigative reporter for a regional newspaper north of Tokyo before he became a novelist. And he is now one of Japan's most acclaimed and best-selling writers of fiction. And there's a connection between his life story and the plot of Seventeen. So in 1985, he was an investigative reporter at that regional newspaper that I just mentioned when a passenger plane crashed in a remote mountain range in the area. It killed 520 people and miraculously left four survivors. Yokoyama himself trekked eight hours up the mountain to the crash site, spent the night there. In his words, quote, surrounded by body parts that no longer resembled anything human. And then when people eventually lost interest in that news story, he felt a, quote, hollow sense of loss, which was one of the reasons he left journalism and became a novelist. News fades away, he says, but stories stand the test of time. So 17 tells the story of the crash from the perspective of a character named Kazumasa Yuki, who becomes the chief supervisor of coverage, newspaper coverage of the crash at a regional newspaper. Uh, Yokoyama says in the preface that, quote, by detailing every psychological shift that the editorial team undergoes as they are inundated by one problem after another, he hopes to, quote, have shed some light on the workings of Japanese media and allow the reader to witness both the positive and negative essence of human nature. So let's start with, what did you think when I recommended this book? I was excited because I would not normally read a book in translation. It's a Mm. weird quirk of mine, but as a word nerd, Mm -hmm. as a writer myself, I am troubled by translation because I feel like, I, you know, it's one step removed from the actual writer. And of course, as, as a result, I have some major gaps in my literary background because I usually avoid that. So when you recommended something that it, you had vetted the author already, I was all in. And also I'm just, you know, having written a Broadway musical about the Japanese-American community, I naturally have a, a real interest in all things Japanese. So I was all in and I, I couldn't put it down. I loved it. Oh, he does great. something that I love in, in a novel where you're jumping from uh, different narratives. He just constantly keeps you going from one to the other. So he has that sort of, you know, one more chapter. Okay, just one more chapter. <laughs> right, right. And I, like I said, I loved all the internality of it, all of the inside baseball of uh, Japanese journalism of its time. I, I found yes. the politics of it just absolutely fascinating. And the central tensions of the book mattered enough to you to keep you engaged because they are not what you might think. Um, they would be, given that it's about a plane crash. The cause of the crash comes into play, but not a whole lot of attention is given to it. And and the central tension that does apply to it is whether or not they have enough information to use a scoop about it. It's not actually what caused this plane to crash. It almost doesn't matter. Absolutely. And there's also one of the big takeaways for me was the management of the 
newspaper who had had a major story a generation earlier and their attempts to suppress this as being a story that would then set them as yesterday, literally as yesterday's news. Right, right. I found that political infighting and the toxic masculinity and the way in which they deal with one another, you know, it's like a mammoth play. I mean, they're just so mean to each other. They're so mean. And the toxic masculinity is the perfect way to describe it. I was interested too, because... In terms of what we learn about the main character's relationship with his wife and his son, you know, he treats them quite badly. The author, I think, was very effective in making us kind of on his side anyway. Did you have the same feeling? Absolutely. I feel like he writes with great empathy and understanding. So they're are many heartbreaking moments where the protagonist wants to say something, particularly to his son, and can't. Right. And and I just felt like it was emotionally very self-aware, very honest, and very true. There was no sort of mustache twirling of villainizing him for being a negligent father and husband, or worse than worse. negligent. Yeah, worse. Worse than negligent. However, there was a a humanity that made him really understandable. It's not that he is justifying what he did. He he struggles with it, at least. Um, just to compare it to 6-4, and if you end up reading 6-4, I would love to hear if you agree. To me, the overall story, all of the different pieces of the story in 6-4, all of the emotional resonance and the peace with the family, the peace with the office politics, all of that works more seamlessly toward a whole. But it might be because it was my first experience with this author. I'll read it and then we can talk about it. Bonus, bonus episode. <laughs> Fantastic. Mark, do you want to start the GG conversation? Yes. So Gigi is a 1944 novella by the mononymous Colette, a French writer of the mid-century. And it concerns a teenage girl who is being groomed by her grandmother and her aunt Alicia to become a courtesan in the family tradition. And it's about Gigi's rebellion against that and uh, paradoxically, her interest in finding uh, true love versus this other path that is presented to her. I chose it, first off, as a writer of musicals and somebody who writes about musicals. Eve, as you know, I'm working on a nonfiction book right now called Tale as Old as Time, How History Shaped the Musicals that Shaped History. So I'm very much interested in understanding the backstory on um, what's essentially the canon of musicals. And this, of course, is most famously known by the 1958 film musical Gigi, uh, written by Alan J. Lerner and Frederick Lowe, the composing team of My Fair Lady, with which it shares a certain amount of DNA. I'd never read it, and I was really interested in reading it. And I'm particularly interested in 
Eve's perspective on it because I was very struck by the female point of view of the book coming from a female author, but also just the lack of the male gaze. I found it to be very refreshingly a successful example of passing the Bechdel test. You know, are there more than two named female characters who talk about something other than a man? And we're never in the point of view of the man. It's always these women and a very insular environment where we're examining their opinions on the life of a courtesan. So it really just pointed out to me how Alan J. Lerner, well, let's just say what he didn't know about women was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> just totally yeah. corrupted this source material to turn it into this Pygmalion story of, you know, the sort of finished man creating his ideal. I found it refreshingly frank in its depiction of the female viewpoint. What did you think, Eve? Okay, okay. Well, when you suggested it, I was thrilled. I will confess that I never really thought much about the source material for the movie Gigi. I had seen the movie. And then when you told me that it was a Colette story, I thought, oh my God, this is fabulous. We have to do this. And I think we said something to each other about it will be interesting to read this, given that this may be the most cancelable movie, you know, <laughs> that we could possibly think of. So I was thrilled to have read it. I agree with much of what you've just said. And I did do some reading about the story. And one of my favorite discoveries is that Colette famously did not consider herself a feminist. In fact, in an interview, she said, me, a feminist? I'll tell you what the suffragettes deserve, the whip and the harem. Ooh. Although I will say what we know about Colette too, though, I think she's being deliberately provocative there. I don't think that's what she truly believes. <laughs> yes. And also the word feminist in the 19 teens probably meant something a little different from what it means today, you know? <laughs> so yes, but what I loved about it, I did not find this to be a cynical story. I found it to be, a, it was a story about pragmatic women, not cynical women. This was a deep view into a very narrow, specific group of people who had three options to choose from. They could become courtesans, they could become performers, you know, actresses, singers, or they could become shopkeepers. And this family of women decided, believed, and lived by the principle that the best of those three paths was to be a courtesan. These women are themselves a family and a family business. And they say straight up that, you know, what one of them does, supports all of them. And so Gigi is both, I think, legitimately their beloved granddaughter or, you know, great niece, and simultaneously their most treasured asset. Because if Gigi can land the right man or series of men, it supports all of them. I will, though, say that it's cynical only in the sense that I think Colette has a wry, satiric tone about this. Yes. She is not writing this in kind of a, you know, pro-sex work kind of way. She is casting a little shade on it. There's a, a moment that just made me laugh out loud when Aunt Alicia, who has 
is very impatient with the way they coddle or she perceives them to coddle Gigi and rather than just laying down the law. And she says, let us be prepared for the worst. You've brought a halfwit into the world. She will ask for the moon and I know him. She won't get it. That kind of abrupt language peppers the book entirely. And so I I do think there's a, a loving satire. Totally. Definitely some satire. There's certainly no bitterness, though. And when I think of cynicism, I think of a little bitterness. There is another moment that I adored because it packed such a punch. Um, Gigi's mother comes home after a performance. It's very late at night. She's exhausted. But before going to bed, she stops and goes into the bathroom. And the grandmother has this maxim, which is, you can, at a pinch, leave the face till morning when traveling or pressed for time. For a woman, attention to the lower parts is the first law of self-respect. Okay. <laughs> there is so much that we could unpack there, right? About, about a worldview, about just a clear-eyed description of the ultimate value of women. I just thought that was brilliant and revealing and kind of summed up so much about this story. I'm so glad you loved it because I had the same response and I do always wonder, am I missing something as a man reading this? Because as I read this as a feminist ally, I feel like this book gets a thumbs up from me. I am not troubled by it the way I'd be, let's say, troubled by Lolita, for instance, which, by the way, Alan J. Lerner also turned into a musical. Of course he did. Thank God I don't, I've never heard of that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> God, you know, now that you're saying that, I did keep thinking about Lolita reading this and it's Lolita adjacent, but it's not Lolita. And I'm, I want to bring up, well, a couple of things in response to what you've just said. First of all, I don't think this is an anti-feminist book because they don't romanticize. This is not Pretty Women where we romanticize that, oh, she's a prostitute who gets saved by Prince Charming. This is a clear eyed realistic depiction of a situation where women are making the best life for themselves with what they've been given. But I also want to share with people something really important about this story, which is Gigi is 15 and a half and Gaston is 33. Gigi is being set up to become Gaston's mistress. And originally when Colette wrote the story, she was intending to make Gigi 18 and Gaston 60. (laughs) So, Kind of interesting to see how the story would be different. Yeah. You know? But um, should we talk about the movie a little bit or should we stick with the book for a little longer? I'm all for the movie. Okay. The two things, the two biggest departures in the movie is the addition of Gaston's uncle, who is very famously played by Maurice Chevalier and who is, I, I, he is unwatchable. I mean, every word out of his mouth is so offensive. And we're meant to find him charming. And that's the problem. Right. But then the huge difference in plot, which is really interesting. The end of the story, Gigi has turned down Gaston. She doesn't want to be his mistress. And then there's a final scene where he comes back, not because she's invited him to come back, but he pretends to be coming back for a straw hat that he left there. And she says to him, listen, I've decided that I would rather be miserable with you than without you to which he turns to her grandmother and asks for her hand in marriage. In the movie, he's talking to his uncle after she turns him down. And the uncle says, oh, she'll be back. She'll she'll call you back. Don't worry. It's inevitable. And she does. She sends for him. He comes back. 
she says the same line, I'd rather be miserable with you than without you. And then the movie doesn't end. She gets dressed up and he takes her out to a nightclub where everyone is staring and pointing and she suffers horrendous public humiliation. Now that Gaston has gotten what he wanted, which is Gigi as his mistress, he is utterly bored by her and he yanks her by the hand, takes her home and she's weeping and saying, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? And he leaves her there and she's weeping and and having no idea what she did wrong. And then he comes back and apologizes. So before we get the fairy tale ending, she has to be completely debased. And I don't think I need to watch this again. I'm done just hearing about it from the two of you. I'm I'm finished. (laughs) I did want to talk about one last thing before we stop, which is the ending. The ending of the book, he asks her to marry him and she says yes. And it's meant to be a happy ending. And that's it's very different from everything else Colette wrote. And it feels very out of keeping with Colette as this, you know, clear eyed pragmatist with a satirical eye. And so I wanted to ask you, Mark, what you make of that ending. I mean, are we meant to think that they live happily ever after? Are we meant to think that he's going to marry her and eventually he's going to take a mistress when he becomes bored of her as his wife? Or I I don't know what, if anything, do you make of that happy ending? Well, she's, French, and therefore him having a mistress or mistresses and they have a happy marriage are not mutually exclusive. And certainly when you know about Colette's personal life, I think she would be completely okay with all of those complications. Mm -hmm. She is so complex. I mean, she writes this Belle Epoque frothy book, albeit with a sort of a gimlet eye, while France is occupied by the Nazis. And she is married. And her Jewish husband has done a stint in a concentration camp. Yes. And she has actually pulled strings to get him out and apparently also... Uh, helped other Jews, and at the same time was writing for the collaborationist press and would fill her work with anti-Semitic slurs. So there is, again, a pragmatist about her in that she, you know, does what she needs to do to survive. I don't condone or condemn. I just feel like I understand. Also, The ick factor that we look at, the 33-year-old man and the 16-year-old girl, again, culturally, turn of the century, this is not a a particularly unusual relationship. Mm -hmm. It's like that scene in Coal Miner's Daughter when he says, well, you're 13 now. It's about time we get hitched. I mean, like, it's (laughs) – No, and and she makes that clear in the book, too, because there are other 15-year-olds who are in these kinds of relationships. Well, and on top of that, Colette herself – in addition to having uh, both male and female lovers outside of her marriage, also, do I dare say the word seduced or do I just say she molested her 16-year-old stepson? Yes. <laughs> My God. So, yeah. How come we haven't seen that movie yet? Yeah. Somebody needs to get on that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, she's an intensely complicated, complex writer, and that's, I think, what makes her great. Julie, for you, I suggested Here is New York, the essay by E.B. White. 
White wrote this essay in 1948. It was a Holiday Magazine article. He was living in Maine at the time. He came back to New York City in the middle of the summer in a heat wave. And while he was sweltering at the Lafayette Hotel on Ninth Street, which is no longer there, he wrote this piece, which has been called, you know, the ultimate homage to New York City. White was 49 years old at the time. He'd been writing for major magazines, including and especially The New Yorker, for 20 years. He'd published Stuart Little at this point, but not yet Charlotte's Web or Elements of Style. Basically, for people who haven't read it, it is a stroll through New York City in 1948 in 7,500 words. And we see the various peoples and places and the very particular energy of New York City, not just at that time, but it also harkens back to New York City as White first knew it in the 1920s. And I also think at the same time, it is almost eerily timeless yeah. Because there is something about the heart of New York City that never changes. So to read it now is to find a lot in it that is still very recognizable. Oh, it's absolutely what makes it a classic. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so selfishly, I wanted to reread it. It's one of those pieces that is wonderful to reread every bunch of years. And also, um, the three of us are around White's age. It's summer. It's really hot out. Um, I was born in Mount Vernon and E.B. White was born in Mount Vernon. Um, my father was from Mount Vernon. My mother's family came to New York City from Europe and never left. So for me, White is describing the New York City of my parents and my grandparents. Hmm. And one of the reasons I wanted to suggest that you read this for this game of ours is you're a New Yorker, but your roots are in Louisiana. And since you'd never read the essay, I was really interested to know how you would react to it as a current New Yorker who is not from New York. Okay, but can I start with a bit of background from the introduction to the essay? Absolutely. The introduction was written by Roger Angel, who is a New Yorker writer and editor, and was E.B. White's stepson. He talks about how E.B. White only wrote this piece for Holiday Magazine, which usually published, you know, travel pieces. E.B. White didn't like to travel. And so E.B. White would never have been presumably seen in the pages of this magazine, except that his stepson, Roger Angel, was working there. And so having E.B. White's byline in Holiday would have been a thrill for Roger Angel, he says, and maybe a little career boost. And so he did it for his stepson. Otherwise, this essay would not have been written, presumably. Mm. He also said that when the assigning editor at Holiday Magazine sent him a letter offering him the assignment, the editor had begun with the thought that he might have fun, in quotes, writing about New York. <laughs> yes. And E.B. White told Roger Angel that that language had almost stopped him right there from continuing with the project because, and I'm quoting, writing is never fun. Yeah, I, I, I read that as well. And I thought, yes. <laughs> exactly. I always knew I loved you, E.B. White. Right? Yeah. Um, so there's that. I love here is New York. I love this essay. I think it's just line after line after line of sheer mm -hmm. genius that captures uh, New York of old and New York today and surely New York of the future. I mean, yeah. it really gets at the essence of New York in a lot of ways for me. I agree with you about loving this essay so much. I, I almost feel like we shouldn't discuss it. We should just read the entire thing aloud. Right. But in terms of being not from here, being from somewhere else, 
I think that that, for me, only heightened my connection with a lot of what he was saying. Mm-hmm. I just want to read one line of the many that I'm sure we will read. Manhattan, he's talking about. It carries on its lapel the unexpungible odor of the long past, so that no matter where you sit in New York, you feel the vibrations of, and then he talks about sort of famous people and also unfamous people. You know, it goes on from there. But basically of times past, you, you can just sort of sit down in a diner and feel history. This sort of constant hum of both history, but also exciting history mm-hmm. that he's describing as being ever present and vibrating through, you know, sort of the seats of the city. That is not there in Baton Rouge. And I'm not saying you can't tap into a sense of history in Baton Rouge because you can. Mm-hmm. But there's this combination of both history and promise that's everywhere and that's vibrating everywhere in yeah. New York in a kind of energy that, again, is past and present and future all at once. That's not there in Baton Rouge. Yeah. And I think in E.B. White's New York, that energy is not only coming from the history, it's also coming from, you know, the fact that at every moment, infinite things are happening simultaneously. Yes. And also he ascribes it to the people of New York. I wonder if you highlighted this Mm. passage about three New York. He says there are three New Yorks and I'm paraphrasing here. One is the man or woman who was born here and takes the city for granted Two, the New York of the commuter whom he refers to as locusts who come and go every day (laughs) without really engaging in the city in any meaningful way. And then three, and this is you, the person who was born somewhere else and came to New York in quest of something. Yeah. And then he says that the greatest of these three New Yorks is the last. And now I am quoting, commuters give the city its tidal restlessness. Natives give it solidity and continuity, but the settlers give it passion. You're, mm, you're the seven. I love that. <laughs> so thanks for that, Julie. Well, if I, if I might jump in, I'm a big believer that there are only two kinds of cities, homicide cities and suicide cities. And homicide cities are the ones that vibrate with action. Detroit is a homicide city. Miami, Los Angeles, New York, Portland, Oregon, Cincinnati, Minneapolis. <laughs> these are these I think are suicide cities. And there's this sort of, you know, kind of slightly depressive vibe with all due respect to those places. They're not the place where you go and say, if I can make it there, I'll make it anywhere. They they don't have that mm-hmm. that energy. And that's uh, yeah. and so it's true of New York. And it's, of course, it's true of other places in the world as well. Everybody is uh, is striving. Everyone is competing. You're competing just for a piece of uh real estate on the sidewalk when you're walking. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say he has some interesting points about the kind of violence that you're talking about to the eruptions of crime. And he says like you can live in New York and be sort of buffered from that in a strange mm-hmm. way. The, the city protects you from it. So there can be all of this turmoil going on and yet you can continue to live your life the way that you want to live it. Obviously, that's not always true, and that's a privileged point of view. And yet, you know, if you think about the newspaper articles about what happens in New York, I don't constantly feel like I'm living the in the same city as what the certainly the local news is showing. Yeah. 
He also has this really interesting discussion of how in every neighborhood in New York, and this I think contributes to this buffering feeling, you know, every single neighborhood has a main street. Every single neighborhood has a grocery store and a florist and a cafe and a bakery. And so you can feel very much like you have this little world. He tells a funny story about how when he moved three blocks away from his bakery, Mm -hmm. they got very worried that they would never see him again because I guess there was another bakery, you know, um, in that neighborhood that they felt he might start to frequent. I had wanted to bring up this idea of the micro neighborhood, so I'm glad you brought it up. Um, I'm wondering about um, as retail shifts so dramatically in New York, you know, I don't think we would describe New York that way anymore. I mean, yes, there are grocery stores and bakeries, but not, it doesn't have those micro neighborhoods, I think, in the same way. And so how does that qualitatively shift our experience? Um, But I want to go back to this idea of buffering and about New York being a place, as you said, Mark, you know, where if you can make it here, you could make it anywhere. But there's also an assault on your senses at all times. I've been talking to a lot of young people because both of my kids are either out of college or just about to be out of college. And so they have lots of friends moving to New York who are not from New York. And New York just, it just kicks the shit out of you the first six months that you're here. Mm -hmm. And I've been hearing from them about, you know, yes, New York is great, but it's also overwhelming. And I think it takes time to build up that skill of protecting yourself. Um, E.B. White talks about this 18 inches of separation between people and, um, that you learn to construct around yourself at all times. And Mark, you are the person who taught me the value of a really great opening line and that the best opening lines will sum up the entire book for you in one sentence. And I know the example you always use is Charlotte's Web, which has the opening line, where's Papa going with that ax, said Fern to her mother as they were setting the table for breakfast. Well, the opening sentence of Here is New York is, on any person who desires such queer prizes, New York will bestow the gift of privacy and the gift of loneliness, Mm. which, you know, the gift of loneliness is such an interesting thing. Not only did I pull out that sentence, but I also underlined the gift of loneliness. I'm wondering whether you underlined a passage that absolutely gave me chills. The one about that begins the subtlest change in New York is something people don't speak much about that is in everyone's mind. Oh, you mean about like nine? He wasn't talking about nine eleven. No, but he's talking about how we can all be destroyed with the yes, yes. He talks about <laughs> airplanes. Um, yeah. yeah, I'll read this passage. The subtlest change in New York is something people don't speak much about that is in everyone's mind. The city, for the first time in its long history, is destructible. A single slide of planes, no bigger than a wedge of geese, can quickly end this island fantasy, burn the towers, crumble the bridges, turn the underground passages into lethal chambers, cremate the millions. All dwellers in cities must live with the stubborn fact of annihilation. In New York, the fact is somewhat more concentrated because of the concentration of the city itself, and because of all targets, New York has a clear priority. In the mind of whatever perverted dreamer might loose the lightning, New York must hold a steady charm. And of course, this was not about 9-11. This was just after World War II, and this was the Cold War. But it obviously, I thought instantly about 9-11. I'm sure you did too. And there was a real question after 9-11, could New York recover? Right. And of course it did. And then we've had this pandemic, which decimated New York in the early days. And the question came up again. Yeah. Can New York recover? And I, 
we have. Um, I, it, it actually, as, as horrible as that description is, looking at it from that perspective, it gave me a lot of hope and pride in our city that mm. we do bounce back. There is regeneration in New York. Oh, that's such a lovely spin on it. Because I was sitting here thinking, you know, there's some downsides to being a really powerful writer. <laughs> you could have just not included that, E.B. Well, that's true. <laughs> right. Yes. And I don't think yeah. he included it to inspire us, right? To make no. us feel hopeful. But with, no. with the perspective of time, it does make me feel hopeful. Thank you so much for that uplifting note, Eve. I can't think of a nicer way to end. So I'm going to say that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Mark at marcacito.nyc. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and me.